thank you. My name is B, and I'm an alcoholic. Can you all hear me over there? Oh, I'm so self-centered that it would be terrible if you didn't, you know. You might miss something. You might never stay sober. Well, I'm not going to let you out of here until midnight, so I'm going to take my coat off. It's too loud? Oh, okay. Is that better? I'll do my best to be perfect, but I don't think it's going to work. I want you to, to tell you that I'm grateful to you for inviting me back. Um, it's always a great um, compliment when I'm asked to come to someplace a second time because in my other life, I think when people had a little dose of me, then they didn't want me anymore. So in AA, I get to go and meet people all over again, and it's really exciting. Uh, my story hasn't changed very much. Um, as a matter of fact, my recovery has changed a little bit, but the story of my drinking is the most boring one you're ever going to hear if you haven't heard it before. And so I encourage you to have a little nap until I get to the part where I talk about my recovery. Um, as most of you have heard many times, um, my life was marvelous until I was two. And, um, <laughs> then um, it just all seemed to fall apart because um, I have a problem and it's called people. You know, people just won't do it the way they're supposed to. I, I don't know why. Um, they, they won't fit into my plan for things and I think I know the plan there is for everything. And for some reason, the people in the world out there, you know, where they are in the streets and all, they don't seem to do it the way they're supposed to. And this was manifested to me when I was two because what happened in my family was that um, my little sister was born. And uh, they didn't ask my permission for that. Uh, as you can tell by now, those of you who don't know, I came, I was born and raised in Ireland. Uh, that's why I have this disease. Um, it's called the Irish disease. And um, you get, well, you can get it if you're Norwegian, I think, and you can get it if you're, um, if you're Italian and Spanish and African. You know, other people have gotten our disease from us in Ireland. But it's basically the Irish disease. Uh, I'm always delighted when I come to, to a place. I, I'm, I just love, I tell everybody across this country about AA in Dallas. This is my favorite place to be. And that's not BS. That's the truth. I love the Dallas AA. Uh, there's something very serious about the way you work your program and the way you work your steps, and it's always impressive to me. Anyway, this little girl was born, and uh, I didn't like her. You know, she didn't have freckles. I have some freckles here that I don't care for. I can't do anything about them now. I'm beginning to accept them, and um, I guess there's not much I can do now. And um, she didn't. Uh, she she just she didn't have red hair. You know, and. She just seemed to be the epitome of beauty. And my parents uh, spent a lot of time worshipping her. And it felt to me that they were leaving me out. Now, I know that you always have felt included. I can tell by looking at your faces. You've never felt lonely in your lives. You've, you've, always, you've always known what it has felt like to, be, to fit in, you know. Well, I never knew anything about fitting in. I still know very little about fitting in. And so... Uh, in my family, what they did every year, my parents, they had babies every year. And we had a new one every single year, and then we ended up with five of us. And uh, when the, just shortly after the fifth baby was born, my father went to work one day, and he never came home. He was killed in an accident. And I didn't know how to do grief or mourning or loss or any of the things that we get to learn about today. But all I knew that my father, whom I worshipped, 
was gone. And my mother was um, a public school teacher, and she took me aside one day, and she said, B, I want you to help me to raise these children. And if you're an oldest child, you might identify with some of the feeling that I had then, but I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know what that meant to get a lot of responsibility. And my mother was a very purposeful kind of woman. She, was, uh, she is a very goal-oriented woman even today. And, uh, in fact, <laughs> there's a little, uh, there's a little um, paragraph in the big book, and um, my mother prepared me for this paragraph. And it says, Is she not a victim of the delusion that she can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only she manages well? And my mother taught me how to manage well. She taught me how to clean and cook and babysit, and she just knew that if she educated all of us, that when we became 32 like she was, we would not be widowed, and, or at least if we were, we would have something we could do. And she believed in education. That was her big thing. And so I took care of those kids, and I went to school, and I worked hard, and I never was a kid. I put away my dolls, and I never, never played. And when I got into my teenage years, I did what most of you have done. Some of you look like you're still there. Wonderful young group here. It's very exciting for me to see that. And what I decided to do in my teenage years, I decided to become a saint. <laughs> now, it's always offensive to me when they read it out of the big book and they say we're not saints. You know how they read that out of chapter 5. And what I did in trying to become a saint was, what I did was I became a Catholic nun, which I am doing today. I'm doing Catholic nuns for a long time. In fact, in July of this year, I will have been 40 years a Catholic nun. Now, if there's anybody here in this room who has a resentment against somebody like me, I want you to know right from the word go that I didn't do it to you, okay? <laughs> there's my friend over there. See, I always have one or two who have resentment about people like me. You're mad at some nun or some priest or some pope, and it, you think it's my fault, don't you? <laughs> Wrong. I didn't do it to you, folks. So it gets me off the hook, and I tell you that straight away. Now, those of you who are recovering Catholics will appreciate that, and those of you who are not recovering Catholics, you might be wondering, um, well, what happened to her? How did she get the booze? Long story. So sit tight and uh, make yourselves comfortable. So I became this little nunny bunny in the year 1950, and uh, I loved it. I still do. I love this living. I love this life I do. I'm very interested in it. I always have been. I think I was cut out to be this kind of a person. And um, then what I did was uh, they sent me on to school. They sent me over to England, uh, the nanny bunnies did, over to England to uh, finish my education at the University of London. And that was a kind of a prestigious uh, school to become part of or to graduate from. And when I was finished there, a <laughs> funny thing happened to me was that I got to thinking that I knew all there was to know about everything. You know what I mean? Like I knew everything about early childhood education, about primary education, about secondary education, about college. I just got to know a lot of stuff, and I became kind of sort of grandiose and a little bit uh, that thing that we call arrogance. Um, you look like you don't have that here in Dallas, but I have a lot of that arrogance, where I don't like anybody to tell me what to do. 
And so I graduated from there with flying colors, and um, I was assigned to teach in a public school in England, and I loved teaching. still love to teach, although I don't get to do it in the same form as I used to. But I loved teaching little kids. I loved opening their little minds and helping them to envision what their life journey would be, and oh, I used to have a lot of fun with little kids. But a very, very strange thing happened between my ears, which I believe is called my head. I'm not sure what it is, but that's what they tell you in the program. It's called your head. A voice would go off on a regular basis in my head. And the voice would say, if only they would shape up, I would feel better. If only they would do it differently, or if only I could be someplace else, then I'd feel better inside. And it seemed that I wanted the rest of the universe in some form or shape to do it differently from the way they were doing it. And I was positive if I could get that to work, if I could get that in sync, then I'd be okay. And so one day I came home from school from after teaching a whole day, and there was a, a letter on our bulletin board, and the letter said, Would any of you sisters here like to volunteer and go to California? Well, being as um, dramatic and histrionic as I am, I thought I belonged in Hollywood anyway. You know, I was good. And I ended up signing up and volunteering, and they picked me, which I thought was awfully good taste on their part. And not only that, but they told me that I was going to be in charge. Now, there's nothing better that an alcoholic likes than to be in charge. Um, you know, we like to have control of things. Uh, either covertly or overtly. Well, I'm one of your more overt types. As you'll know, if any, if you stay here for this weekend, you know that uh, when I say things, I usually want them done, like I said, you know. And so I got to California, and they told me I was going to be in charge of the school. I was going to be the principal of the school, and they were going to put me in charge of uh, all the nanny bunnies. That meant I was going to be the mother superior. And so, uh, welcome. Come on in. And so I arrived in Southern California on the 16th of August, 1964. And in those times, we were wearing all the, the nunny clothes. Have you ever seen pictures of us? Have you ever seen somebody like me dressed up, you know, as a nunny bunny? With all the, the white stuff over my head and the black, long black wool serge. Boy, it was hot in California on the 16th of August, 1964. But I knew it was going to be okay because I was in charge. And everything was wonderful in my life for about five days. And uh, after five days, I was to meet somebody who afterwards was to be my arch enemy until, oh, I think it was like the day before yesterday. <laughs> and he was known as the pastor. And he was the priest in charge of that whole plant and stuff. And I got to learn something awfully quick that he was in charge of the finances and the money. And he thought he was in charge of everything, and he thought he was the boss, and I knew I was the boss, and immediately we locked horns. You know, we just didn't get along. And he, he came from an Irish background, and he, we just didn't like each other at all. I mean, really, at all. And uh, so we started to fight, and I started to think about how I could get rid of him, and I started to think about writing letters about him, and oh, it was real hard. And um, one day, a, a wonderful thing happened to me. And if you're like I am, you'll remember the day that you got your first drink or your first fix or your first whatever it was that took away your pain. 
And the way it happened to me was that this lady came to my office, I was the school principal, and she said, it's very hot today, we're having the Santa Ana wind there, and she said, would you, um, all the sisters like to come over and swim in our swimming pool? And so we did, and we took off our nunny clothes and got into our swimsuits, and we had a wonderful time. And she came to the side of the pool with a tray and a large pitcher and some glasses. And on the top of the glasses, there was salt. You're so smart. Boy. <laughs> you know what was in the picture, don't you? <laughs> You're bright here. I'm glad. Because um, I say that because in England, they don't know what I'm talking about. When I tell this story in England, they go, it goes right over their heads. And my personal opinion is that if you haven't had a margarita, you don't qualify yet, you know? <laughs> That's just off the record, you know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Certainly was the drug of my choice. And um, so I took a few slurps or slugs. I never did sip. I, I didn't know how to do that. They never taught me how to sip. And uh, I just knew that I must have died and that I went straight to heaven. I just, that's, that's the feeling I had. It was marvelous. And I knew for sure that if I could continue to get this stuff for the rest of my life, that everything would be fine, you know. Uh, the nunny bunnies who were working for me, they would work harder or I would feel better about them and the kids I taught or the kids everybody else taught, the teachers in the school, everything would seem better. And so before I left the lady's house, I asked her for the recipe. And she gave me the recipe to take home. And if you're new here, if you're new to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, you may or may not know that denial is built into this disease. And I thought that the nicest thing I could possibly do for the other nanny bunnies that I lived with and worked with, and I was their superior, I thought the nicest thing I could do for these people was to whip up this little beverage on a regular basis <laughs> when, um, when I could get the ingredients and, um, you know, and give it to them because they worked hard for me. And if they didn't finish what they were drinking, that I could have their leftovers kind of thing. You know, that's just how it was. And it was hard for me to get the ingredients. It really was hard. But um, one day the pastor came over to, to visit us and he said, um, is there anything that you need? Now when he did that, he always thought I needed a new table or six new chairs for the eighth grade classroom or a new clock or something, you know, like furniture because I thought that if I could get things that that would help me to feel better too. And so I said to him, yes, as a matter of fact, there is something we need. We would like to have a bottle of tequila. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget the look in his face, but it changed into kind of joy. Tequila was kind of easy, he thought. So he went away, and he came back in about four and a half minutes, and he had... <laughs> he had a bottle of tequila, and I think he got that where they manufactured it, which was in the rectory where he lived. Now, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure about that, but I think that that's what happened. And he said, you like this stuff? And I said, yes, we do. And uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, um, next Sunday we're having this little get-together in, in the rectory. We're having the priests in the area coming over for dinner, and we're having little steak and, you know, a glass of wine. And, oh, God, this sounded so wonderful to me. And just out of, it's, it doesn't make any difference to anybody here, I'm sure, but just to, for any of you that would be interested, to put you into some kind of an historical setting. There was a movement happening in our church at the time. It was called Vatican II. And that meant that uh, this little roly-poly pope over in Rome had um, become pope. And everybody thought he was no good and he was going to die soon. 
But what he did was marvelous. He he went over to the windows of the Vatican and he opened the Vatican windows. He said, God, it's awful stuffy in here. Still is, but, you know. Uh, and he said, let's get a bit of fresh air into this church. And um, let's uh, let's modify some of those rules and uh, start thinking about what's in our hearts and not be too particular about externals and all of that. And what I thought he meant was that we could drink. You know, I really thought he meant that Sister B could drink. I really believe that that's what it was all about. So we went over to visit the pastor and his friends for dinner that next Sunday. And uh, I found out some wonderful things there. I found out that he had bourbon, and he had a thing called scotch, and he had vodka, and he had um, all kinds of wine, and he had after-dinner drinks. And I thought, well, goodness gracious me, I've got to get friends with him. (laughs) And uh, I've got to work hard for him, and I've got to do whatever it is that he wants me to do as the school principal. And I decided that I was going to stay close and uh, do everything, whatever it was that he needed and wanted. And I was going to work well with this man, very well. And uh, I think the book calls it Seeking Law Companions. <laughs> but <clears throat> anyway, I decided to stick, stick in with him anyway and stay close and I would get my beverage on a regular basis. And so my drinking began. Now, I have some wonderful drinking stories, and I'm sure you'll hear some of them if some of you come back here over the weekend. But uh, some of my favorite ones are that um, there was this man in our parish, and he had a trailer down in Ensenada. And um, he said to us one day, if you ever want to use that trailer, you can use it anytime we're not using it. And I went into the Nunny Bunnies, and I said to them, you know what? More than 50% of the people in Southern California are going to be Hispanic within the next few years. So every time we get the opportunity, we need to go down to Mexico to learn Spanish. But when he was giving me the keys of his little trailer, he said, Sister, this is the key of the front door, and this is the key of the cabana, and Sister, this is the key of the liquor cabinet. Help yourself. Aren't those magic words to an alcoholic? And I remember the prayer I prayed. And I said, praise God from whom all blessings flow. (laughs) And I got myself down there as often as I could and as quickly as I could on long weekends and short weekends, little holidays and big holidays, mini holidays and maxi holidays, and every time I could get down there. And that's how the beginning part of my drinking started. And I just thought it would be absolutely wonderful to be able to drink like a lady, to get this, this nice feeling of just, eh, you know, that me- Some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You do? I don't feel alone here, like that mellow, you know, where it was just, just that little click where it was going to be okay. I just knew I was always going to get it within 15 minutes, but it never quite stayed, you know, that feeling. And so it became increasingly more necessary for me to procure my alcohol. And my superior sent me over to Australia during <laughs> these years when I was trying to do what the book says we can't do, which is control and enjoy my drinking. And I remember in Australia they said to me, um, first of all, they didn't ever, ever offer me a drink. I never could understand that. I thought it was awfully, what kind of mean of the people in Australia. <clears throat> I was doing a kind of a seminar with our sisters there. 
And this little sister said to me um, about the day or so before I left, she said, is there anything that I could get you? You look like you're awfully tired, and what she wanted to tell me was that I was becoming a little bitch because I was real irritable, you know. <laughs> and she said, um, could I get you something? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I said, you could. I, I really would like to have a drink. And she went to the, to the medicine cabinet, and she brought me this bottle that I think they had had there for at least 100 years. And she gave it to me, and she said, of course, happy. And I think she meant that I was just going to take a little drop for medicinal reasons like the rest of the nuns did, and give her back the bottle. Well, she never got the bottle back. And she always remembers that. I saw her. I was over there in the last couple of months, and she always remembers that, that I never gave her the bottle back. And my drinking career uh, started, and it progressed, and it got worse. And what happened to me, folks, was what I'm sure happened to you, whether you're drinking or using or whatever, was that I died a little bit inside. And uh, our co-founder, Bill W., talks about that rather well in page 8 of the big book where he says that no words can describe the loneliness. You know that cut off feeling that we have from the rest of society, from ourselves, from the people around us, from our loved ones. We have a kind of a cut off feeling from everybody. And we don't know what it is that's wrong with us. We just don't know what that is. And he says that no words can describe that loneliness. And it would be always, it always is awfully interesting to me when I see a group as large as yours and I would love to be starting here and go all around this room and into all these other rooms and, and ask each of you on a one-on-one, how did you die? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember, were you in your kitchen? Were you in jail? Were you in a hospital? Were you on the side of the road and the freeway? Where were you when, you when you were dying? Can you remember that? And we'd have an accumulation of a lot of miracles here because the fact is we're sitting here tonight and by the grace of God, we're sober and clean. And it's always very touching to me that, that that can happen. Well, wherever you were, I don't know where that was at all, as a matter of fact. But I'm here to tell you that I was in a very sheltered environment. I was in a building, a place, a home that was called my convent where I live. And I was living there with beautiful people, prayerful people, kind people, people who wished me well people who wanted me to be okay and people who were very good to me and I was dying and I never knew about people like you I didn't know I never knew I, I, I knew alcoholics were people who got drunk and they would lie under a bridge at night and they'd have a bottle in a sack and they were dirty that's basically what I thought an alcoholic was and I certainly didn't ever want to become an alcoholic so see I set out to do the thing that our book says we can't do I set out to control and enjoy my drinking and the book says it's the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. And I tried real hard to, to do those two things together. Now, one of the things that I, I did two things, basically, to try to do this. Once I tried to quit. Did you ever try to quit by yourself? <clears throat> Didn't last very long, but I did try. And I remember going to the doctor and telling him that I thought I was having a nervous breakdown because I was shaking and I was perspiring and I was crying. And I said, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. And so he was very obliging, and he gave me some little pills there that I could have. One was called Valium, and the other one was called um, Librium. And then eventually, he, well, I think he gave me Elevil and Stelazine first, and then he graduated me into the other two. And so I had open prescriptions for those four drugs. Now, for some reason, I didn't get hooked on um, prescription drugs because I always felt like the music on Twilight Zone, you know? <laughs> you know, really... Well, 
out there, the music, the, the, the lights on, but there's nobody home kind of feeling. And I like to be in control. And so, for some reason, I got rid of the prescription drugs and I went back drinking again. I thought that made more sense, you know, that, uh, you know, drinking was much less uh, serious to my system. And then I did another thing besides giving up alcohol. I thought that I would try to pray more. Don't you try to pray when you're drinking or using and try to wonder, you know, I never had a problem with God in the sense that I believed that there was a God. But I believed that God was God and that I was Mrs. God, and so therefore <clears throat> I was in charge, you know, I was just in charge of the relationship, basically. And uh, I used to um, call out things I wanted God to do and write them down and draw his attention to them and you know, all that sort of stuff, and I just basically always telling God what to do. And I never had a kind of any sort of a mutual relationship with God, even though I had prayed the Our Father for years. I never thought of what Thy will be done meant until I found Alcoholics Anonymous. It never dawned on me. I don't know why. I used to give workshops on God's will. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of embarrassing. It's really embarrassing. I never connected with any of this stuff. I never. I didn't know I had a disease. I really didn't. Uh, I, I want to tell you this because usually in a group this large, there's usually one person at least who might have been or is at this moment angry with God. Might be just one tonight. So I'm going to tell you this. I was very upset with God because you see, I used to go to bed at probably 10 o'clock at night with a little something to help me to sleep. I suffered from grave insomnia. I mean grave insomnia. And I couldn't sleep for years before I got sober. And I go in and out of insomnia even yet, although I'm much better than I used to be. But insomnia is something that's very, very, very close. I mean, I know all about that. And so I used to wake up at like one, well, two, two twelve on the digital clock. It was never like two fifteen. It was always like two twelve. And I knew only alcoholics would drink in the middle of the night like that. And plus, I never knew if we had any, and mostly we wouldn't have any because, you know. Well, you know, it would be all gone from the time before. <laughs> and um, what I would do would be I would try to pray. And I used to go down to our little chapel that we have in our convent on the first floor, and I'd go into the chapel. And the, I was so angry because I couldn't not drink. I couldn't not drink. And what I used to do when I would go into the chapel, I used to give God the finger. And um, I was taught how to do that by the 7th and 8th graders that I used to teach, so... <laughs> I got to know more things since I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, but that's what I knew then. And I used to be really, really angry with God, and I, I just didn't know why this whole thing didn't measure up. I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And I never felt I quite fitted in, and I was always craving alcohol, and when I drank, I was always getting in trouble. And I never could understand the nunny bunnies. I really couldn't. Now, they would, we would have these little, like, birthday celebrations or anniversaries or whatever, and I was always cooking them up. I would say, well, didn't you have a birthday last week? And they'd say, oh, no, that was six months ago. I'd say, let's celebrate. Let's, let's, let's do it again, you know. Let's do it. And they'd say, oh, that's kind of funny, but we did it anyhow, you know. They wouldn't think of questioning their superior, you know. And uh, we would do it anyhow, and we would we would have this little. Ce I always thought the word celebration was a nice word. It had a little like liturgical ring to it. It wasn't like, let's all get drunk this evening, girls. You know, we didn't do it that way. <laughs> it's just like, let's just take the let's be nice. And 
When they heard the word celebrate, I think they meant like kick back and watch a movie maybe and visit and eat peanuts. And, and then they would say weird things like, well, I think we have these little glasses. God, little glasses. And they would always want these little glasses. And I was never interested in anything little when I was drinking. Um, I was, was interested in large containers like a flower pot maybe or something. Something that would hold a lot. Didn't matter what it was. I wasn't a bit graceful. But anyway, they would take their little glasses and they'd sip. And then they would do something that I never understood. They would leave it down. You know, God, can you understand that? You know, to this day, I travel nearly every single weekend somewhere in these United States and I see people doing that on the airplane. They'll this is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette over and continue to play on the other side. Or they ask for whatever and they let it sit. God, what a sin, you know, I mean, geez. And you know, when there's a little turbulence and the little airline stewardess runs around to pick up everything, they'll send them back and they're not even finished. And I cannot understand anyone who wouldn't finish their drink. Well, then anybody's never finished their drinks. And so when they were, what they thought was finished, I would come around behind them and I'd take their leftovers and I'd put it away so that I could get it when I needed it. But it was becoming more and more scarce, and I just didn't know what to do, and I didn't know where to go, and I didn't know who to tell, and I was, I was working, like, doing, trying to do about three jobs. I was doing like a juggler, because I was overcompensating for the way I felt. Oh, the gift was dreadful, this big secret I was carrying around that I wanted to drink more than I wanted to do anything in the wide world, but I didn't know about how to tell anybody that. And one day I was um, reading this little pamphlet that comes to our house every single month. It's called Sisters Today. And on the very back page there was an ad. And the ad said, Are you concerned about your drinking, sister? If so, please call this number, collect. Well, I figured that out of 140,000 sisters in the United States, that there must be one other sister who had a problem with alcohol besides myself. <laughs> See, I, I'm terminally unique, as you'll probably learn as this, these days progress. And... Um, so I thought, well, you know, maybe at least I could, I could make a phone call and I could ask about it. Now, I want you to know, in case any of you are still doing this, I want you to know that I had no intention in this wide earthly world of abstaining from alcohol. That was not in my mindset at all. I just thought if I could make this phone call, they could tell me how to control it and enjoy it, even though I wasn't using that language at the time. But, you know, I could, I could get the recipe done so that I wouldn't have to be... I wouldn't have to be foolish, I wouldn't have to be depressed, I wouldn't have to be guilty, I wouldn't have to be crying, I wouldn't have to be making the fool out of myself, I wouldn't have to be dancing the Irish jig on the dining room table in my long habit in front of all the sisters, you know, <laughs> even when it wasn't St. Patrick's Day, you know? <laughs> and they'd say things to me the next day, oh, that was funny last night, I'd say, excuse me? <laughs> what? It's funny. Last night, oh, God, you know how you have to do your tracks over, you know, about what you did? Oh. Thank you, God, that I don't have to do that again. But anyway, I was—I um, made this phone call to Massachusetts. It was like three hours away from, three hours difference in the time from California. So I made the phone call, and uh, this lady answered me. And uh, I told her that I had some questions about this ad I had just read, and she said, well, what were they? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to be getting a new job, and that was truth. I told her that part was the truth, but all the rest of what I told her was lies. I was couldn't tell the truth to her. And I said to her, um, I'm very concerned because my new job 
is that I'm going to be working with priests and nuns in the diocese. I'm going to get this administration job in the diocese. And I'm very concerned because I know a lot of them who are drinkers. And maybe you can help me. So she said, oh, I certainly can. So she told me about recovery hospitals. In fact, that's what that place was, a recovery hospital for priests and sisters. And she told me about uh, literature, and she said she would send me some literature. And then she told me about an organization called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I thought, being as smart as I was, that if I could learn the recipe from her, how not to do it the way I was doing it, that somehow I could learn, you know, how to control and enjoy my drinking. But before I finished the conversation, she said, Sister, would you like to tell me a little bit about your own drinking? (coughs) They're very smart in Massachusetts. Don't ever go there. (laughs) Very smart. And then she said a wonderful thing, which I, I will always remember, and I think it's pr- probably what the, what the greatest gift of our program is. She said, because I can hear pain in your voice. And, you know, we get to do that. We get to hear the pain in one another's voices on the telephone. We get to hear the pain in one another's voices as we share. And we get to see the pain in one another's faces. And then, because we can, we can do that as a result of the program, we get to help to heal one another. Isn't that a wonderful thing? So exciting. God, is so exciting. I get very turned on about Alcoholics Anonymous because it's the greatest, I think it's the greatest event that has ever hit, you know, this whole century. It's just a marvelous, marvelous tribute uh, to what can happen in the world and to what human beings could have, through the grace of God and through God's inspiration, could have brought about this wonderful program of recovery called Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyway, she told me all this stuff, and I just knew, and then I finally was able to do the miracle that we get to do, too, when we get into some kind of willingness. I got to break down. I broke down into the telephone. I started to sob and cry. And I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know who to tell. I don't know anybody. I, I said, but I, I, and I assured her that I was very clever. Oh, man. I was so brilliant. I told her all about my degrees and, oh, God, how important I was and how my name was in the paper last week. And she said, well, you know what? You might want to go to an AA meeting just to see if you you qualify, if you could listen to the feelings. And, oh, I thought, God, I could never go to AA because if I did, (laughs) I probably would meet a mom or a dad or a kid that I talked, like, in the last century or something. And um, I was scared. I really was so scared. But I couldn't get her conversation out of my mind. And so the next day I called Alcoholics Anonymous in a place called Whittier in California, which is quite a distance from where I live in Orange County. And um, maybe some of you have been to Whittier. God. Well, anyway, I called, and I remember exactly what I did. It was a Wednesday morning. And uh, at the time we were wearing a kind of a modified nunny habit. And I changed from nunny clothes into regular clothes, and I put on a whole bunch of eye makeup, and I went down to this place in Whittier called Serenity Hall. And now, believe me, Serenity Hall in Whittier was anything like a serenity place, if you know what I mean. It was a tiny little room, it seemed, and it was very smoky, and it was full of little old men, and they all seemed like they were shuffling all over the floor. And I got in there, and I sat down, and I was petrified. And there was one man, and he was standing at the podium, and he was sharing his experience, strength, and hope. And the first thing he said was that he would sign court cards after the meeting. Well, now, I did not know what a court card was. Uh, 
so I thought I'd have to go out and get a court card so that I could go back and get a member to be a member of the club. But anyway, I sat on in that chair and I was petrified. I remember holding on to the chair and I was just very uncomfortable. And this man became kind of fascinating to me because he, he was using language that I used to punish the 8th graders for using when they were in about the 8th grade. They used to start using these words. And he used a word regularly that starts with shh. <laughs> you might have heard it here. Hardly, though. I don't think so. And he used that a number of times. And then what happened was he graduated into another word that starts with fuh. <laughs> oh, good, bad word. You know, in his regular vocabulary as he's talking, you know. In fact, he was using fuh, the fuh word, in sentences. And he was using the fuh word as different parts of speech, like uh, as adverbs and verbs and prepositions and conjunctions and, you know. And he used the fur word with ing on the end and ed on the end. And um, he also used it once with the word mother before. <laughs> and I can remember thinking, and this is going to be my spiritual leader for the rest of my life. <laughs> oh, I thought, you know. And then when he was all through, he said, keep coming back, it works. <laughs> And I would always remember what I did. I remember, oh, God, I remember getting into the car to go home, and I was crying hard. Oh, and I looked in the mirror, and this stuff that I put in my eyes was coming down my face. And um, I said the sh word and the f word all the way home to the convent. <laughs> I really did. I don't advocate those words, but um, between friends, and I'm far enough away from home to say this, there are no substitutes sometimes. You know what I mean? <laughs> But, you know, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is kind of weird. It really is. And if you're new, I have to tell you, I have to be real upfront with you about this at the beginning. It's kind of strange. Just to tell you weird things. To tell you, like, don't drink. God, imagine. Don't drink. Now, I got sober on the 2nd of December, 1978. And I didn't think that there was any way that you could do Christmas and not drink. Because Christmas in my life was the only legal time that I could even drink without somebody asking me something. or It's just awful. And they were saying, don't drink, don't use drugs. And uh, then they were saying, go to meetings. You know. And I have in my bottom drawer, I have a whole bunch of pieces of paper. They're called degrees. And I thought it was kind of smart. That's why this arrogant thing is a real problem for me. And uh, I thought... Why would I be going to meetings to be among people like you when I know so much? You know, I mean, God, I know all this stuff. There's nothing that I can learn at meetings that's going to help me. So I won't be doing that part. And then they said, um, read the book. Now, I'm an English major. That's one of my majors from the University of London. And um, when I read this book to begin with, I didn't like the way they wrote this book at all. Um, the grammar's not that good in it in some places and the sentences need to be reconstructed. And so what I did was I took the book to the beach one day and I did that. I corrected it. <laughs> so that you'd all have it. Some of you can have my new edition anytime you want it. They never seem to want it anyplace else. So if you want it, I'll, you know, I'll give it to you. 
But I can remember going down to Serenity Hall in Whittier and telling them all this, telling them that the syntax will sanitize my sensibilities as an English major from the University of London. And, um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and they said, keep coming back, B, you know, just God. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I think of those first years. And then they said, get a sponsor. Well, now, I couldn't get a sponsor now. I, I'm sure all of you did all these things the first day, but I couldn't do any of this stuff. He said, get a sponsor. And uh, I didn't trust anybody, so I couldn't get a sponsor. How can you get a sponsor when you don't trust anybody? And they were saying, you know, and these, oh, these women, you know, God, I hated the women. I just thought the women had nothing, you know, had nothing else to do when you sit around and crochet Afghans. That's what they do in California, some of them, you know, they crochet, and they had these smiles, and their faces did nod, and everything was like, okay, everything was okay. And they were, they were always talking about the fact that as soon as they walked into AA, they were home. Oh, yeah. I hated it. I just hated it. I just hated it. And so what I did was I, um, I, um, I interviewed women, and I, I um, temporarily hired them, and then I fired them when they weren't doing what I thought they should be doing. And um, then they, they were telling me, and they, you, you work, they worked these steps. They had steps in the wall just like this. And um, I didn't think there was anything in the steps that I wouldn't have already done before. I really, I thought I just knew enough about all that stuff. And it was, I have a degree in theology and all sorts of God stuff. And I said, there's no, no way that this could enhance my life at all. And so what happened to me, and I tell you this simply because Usually, I find that there's at least one other person in any group I speak to who either is going through this now or will be going through it. And so I always tell it. My sponsors encourage me always to tell this. What I did was I was miserable. I mean, dying in Alcoholics Anonymous. Dying for the first about year and a half. And one day I went down to Serenity Hall and I came in. Oh, God, I was dying. And... Um, I was always crying, too. They used to call me the crying nun. <laughs> I didn't know that, but they told me this later. <laughs> and um, this man came up to me and he said, B, you know, you're always unhappy. And you, you look like you're, you know, you never... You just, this, this program, he told me that this program was intended to help us to become happy, joyous, and free. And I thought, you know, well, they could have fooled me. I didn't get that part somehow. <laughs> And he told me about where it says, you know, we absolutely insist on enjoying life and all these good little bits out of the book. And I didn't get any of that at all. So um, he, he went on to tell me that, you know, that I could be happy if I really wanted to. And, and then he said, listen, I'm going to tell you something, and this might help you. And he said, why don't you go home to your convent? This is the best bit of information I've ever been given in my whole entire life. And he said, kneel down and ask God to give you the willingness to change your attitude. Now, with all the pieces of paper I have in my bottom drawer, with all the lectures I've been to, and all the college courses I've taken, with all the degrees, with all, with all the knowledge that I had here, I had never heard anybody give me that kind of advice and saying, kneel down and ask God to give you the willingness to change your attitude. And I was in such pain that I just did that. I just did that. I went home and I did that. And I would love to tell you that God appeared to me and that there was an angel and there was singing and there was a rainbow and there was a burning bush and all that. None of that happened to me. 
Well, what I am here to tell you is that little by little by little, I got a little bit more willing to do this program exactly as it was designed through the steps. And it was real, real, real slow for me. Real slow. Uh, in fact, only in the last about four or five years have I begun to sort of glimpse on to what I've come to share with you this weekend. And that is the joys of the program. Now, I'm not going to tell you what they are tonight because I would love to have you back here tomorrow. But I'm basically going to tell you a couple of things, though. I have no idea, and some of you I won't see ever again, and I wish you all the wonderful things that God has in store for you, whatever that is, if you stay sober. And for those of you who are going to be here for the weekend, I know that wonderful things are going to happen here. Because one thing I know for absolutely sure, now see, I don't know hardly anything now, but this is one thing I do know, and that is that my God is always working in the strangest places, to the strangest people, in the funniest ways, in ways I would never have. And so I believe that this weekend is filled with a lot of surprises. A lot of surprises for me. A lot of surprises for you. As Candid Camera, that program used to say, who you'd least expect it. <laughs> you know, who you'd least expect it. And so I can't wait to see and hear how God is going to show off this weekend because that's what happens in the program. God shows off. The book talks about it over and over again. It talks about God demonstrating to us. And what's demonstrating except showing off? And so what I propose that I will be doing this weekend will be I will be going through the promises of the program with you and some of you have done this with me before but since I was here last year lots of other things have happened inside of me and while basically the message will be the same I may be doing a few things that will be sort of different. You will recall, uh, and you'll see it here if you look at step 12, and it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result, the result, not as any result, as the result. What happens as the result of the steps is that we wake up. You know, we really wake up. And it's the difference between becoming conscious and being awake. And we get to be alert and alive, and we get to know and to be intuitive. And one day, since I was here last year, I took the 12 and 12 and I counted the number of times in the 12 and 12 that there were promises in the 12th step, in the 12 and 12. And do you know how many promises there are in the 12th step? There are 70, 70, in the 12th step alone. Now, what I counted in between the steps in the big book are 84 promises. There are 13 in step 3. There are six in step four, there are ten in step five, and so on and so forth. And we're going to be rediscovering them and discovering them for the first time for some of us this weekend. But some of the promises that there are in the 12 and 12 as a result of these steps are emotional security. Is there anybody here who would like to get that this weekend? <laughs> oh, good, okay. Wonderful energy. Anybody like a little bit of energy? Peace of mind. Hey, isn't that great stuff? We will be no longer square pegs in round holes. We fit, you know. We'll be sane and happy. Sane for this head? My God, isn't that marvelous? It promises us in step 12 a new state of consciousness. It promises us unselfishness. For somebody like me who's totally and completely self-centered, it promises a whole bunch of things, a new state of being, and that we'll be standing on the edge of new mysteries, and we'll be, all of these things will be happening to us. 
So I'm very interested to find out when that and how that's going to happen. Tomorrow when and if you come here, you'll be given a little schedule. And in the schedule, you'll see tomorrow how we'll be doing everything. We'll be beginning at 9.30. And I have a little butterfly because I love Al-Anon people, and I hope there'll be lots of Al-Anons here too. At the back, uh, I have a quote from William James, who incidentally is quoted in our big book, where we talk about the variety of religious experiences. And he says, The greatest revolution in our generation is the discovery that human beings, by changing the inner attitudes of their minds, can change the outer aspects of their lives. Ladies and gentlemen, this weekend I invite you with me to change the inner attitudes of your mind so that you'll be able to experience the change in the outer aspects of your lives. I love you. Thank you for inviting me. God bless you.